Amen. Good morning. I am Cameron. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. We will be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. I bring you greetings from the Calton family who served faithfully at uh, RUF at KSU and are now at Colorado State. I had the opportunity to surprise, actually more scare Wes in a public place. Uh, And it was quite beautiful to watch his face change as it registered who I was that was accosting him in the middle of a deli. Uh, And so if you get the chance to do that to one of your friends, you ought to. It's great fun. All right, as we are turning to Matthew chapter 5, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning. Is this, Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper as an ongoing opportunity for reconciliation in the church. Let me say that again. Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper as an ongoing opportunity for reconciliation in the church. If you would, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So... If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you that you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this text, it's always a dangerous thing to parachute into the Sermon on the Mount uh, without all the other surrounding context. But just real briefly, it's important to recognize that what, what Jesus is seeking to do with the Sermon on the Mount is help the people of God understand what they should look like in day-to-day life. What should be their ethic? What should be their character? What is it that ought most define them for God's glory, their joy, and the life of the world? Remember, his burden is light compared to the law, right? His burden is actually much easier than what the law places on us, which is something we can't fulfill outside of the power of the Holy Spirit. So the things that he's saying here are actually to help set us free. They're not intended for us to be neurotic or anxious about or even worried about. It's actually because of his forgiveness of us that we can make, uh, make consideration of matters that are of eternal importance to the people in our spheres of influence. And he begins with how that ethic ought play out in the church, right? If there is strife and lack of reconciliation within the church, what is it actually that we are offering to the world? Do you think that the people of the world who don't yet know Jesus as Savior are thinking to themselves, man, the best thing I could do with a Sunday morning is go sing some songs I've never heard before without any of the musical notes uh, and listen to a monologue by a guy that I may never have dinner with. Do you think that's what the world's longing is? 
And what the world is longing for is something that will actually transform their lives and bring peace to their anxiety, to bring peace and reconciliation to their relationships within their families and their workplaces and their neighbors, to bring something that actually matters and transforms how then they live right? That makes a genuine difference, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven in some respects. This is a place the church ought to reflect on earth in some measure as it is in heaven. We are reconciled in Christ before the throne of God. Why would we act toward each other as anything less than that? Right? Why would we not pursue and, and seek to be uh, united to one another for the work that we're called to? The world is too hard for us to fight inside and then to try to go and live outside. Right? And so what Jesus is doing here is trying to help them. In fact, this is one of the first things he gives after he's done the blesseds and then he's hit them with the, one of the most terrifying passages in all the Bible. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you ain't going to make it. And what does he mean by that, by the way? Well, he's just saying, unless you are righteous in me who is perfect, that's the only thing that can exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees who try very, very hard to get God to love them and think that they are better than everybody else. The only thing that can exceed that kind of devotion, that singular focus, is to be in Christ for your righteousness to be, you to be covered in his righteousness, Right? And so what that does is set us free to be able to hear this word from him about murder and anger and the words that we use and how we are to pursue one another. So let me ask you, what regularly spurs you to pursue reconciliation with your brothers and sisters in Christ? What regularly brings that to your attention? Where do you take opportunity to consider and think through, hey, do I have a problem with anybody? And even more, as he's going to tell us here, does anybody have a problem with me? Well, I've got good news for you. One of the great places that this occurs is at the Lord's table. And you may say, I read this and I didn't see anything about the Lord's table. Well, it's in there, uh, and it's, it's really about the altar stuff. They were doing something different because Christ had not yet been crucified, so the temple practices is what he's pointing to. But... We refer to the Lord's table as an altar of sorts. We don't think that Christ is being re-crucified. Uh, the altar, the, the meal has been set, right? He is offering to us nourishment and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a hospitable invitation to come boldly before him, as Hebrews 4 calls us to do, to receive what we need in a time of trouble, both mercy and grace. Think about how the table offers us both mercy and grace, right? You need to be reminded, I need to be reminded, we're forgiven. Let me, let me tell you why I know that's true. How loud do you all say amen after the assurance of pardon? Right? Some of you might break out in, in much more noise if the Falcons actually score a touchdown sometime in the next five minutes. They are playing in London, by the way. And so we show more affection for what someone else does that has no impact on us whatsoever than we do for uh, and celebrate that which is being stated that has affected us eternally. I'm going to argue that needs to change. We need to be a people who are more on earth as it is in heaven. You know what happens in heaven when one lost sinner comes home? A party breaks out like you've never seen. 
Well, when we are reminded of that party, shouldn't we have some sort of response? And you may say, well, I'm an introvert. Well, you introverts ought to be most expressive of all. Right? Because, because you too have been saved from your introvertness, from your unwillingness to maybe speak out, from your unwillingness to maybe share the gospel as us extroverts do. But remember, it's not about that, is it? It's not about who does more. It's not about who does what. It's about who is redeemed. And so we need to be a people that evidence, hey, we know we have been redeemed. So when we hear that assurance of pardon, you know what you're being assured of? You're saved. You're forgiven. You are loved. You are worthy. You are beloved. It doesn't say, you worms, you got lucky one more week. That's the kind of amen we're given. We're like, got lucky one more week. And so this table also declares to us, you are redeemed. This is not a funeral. We're not celebrating just the death of Christ. You understand? That's mercy. But there's also the grace of his risenness, that his blood, his resurrected blood, not only has been applied to us, but flows through us in the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing us to pursue things that we would never do without that resurrection power. So this is a celebration. Is there a, a sublimity to it? Is there some, some weight to it? Amen, yes. Don't take casually, which is why we have to think these kinds of things through, reconciliation. And as Matt talked to you last week, there's ways in which we must prepare and think through before we come to the table. But what we consider and what we prepare in is the finished work of Christ, not anything that would make us earn the table. No one comes to the table worthy of the table apart from union with Christ. And so this is yet another opportunity for us to think through something that is so important to the church for the life of the world, which is reconciliation. My Thursday morning men's group, we were talking about how, how as you mature in Christ, things actually ought to get simpler. There's a way in which we ought to read Scripture as we mature in Christ that leads us to shorter paths of living out the Christian life. Reconciliation is one of those places that as we mature in Christ, it ought to get shorter in terms of us saying, ah, that's what you do. You have a problem, you go take care of it. Not in, not in the take care of it Goodfellas way, but in the take care of it in the Jesus way, right? And so this becomes really important because there have been reams and reams and reams of paper spilled on, well, what is required for forgiveness? What? Well, you know, the other person's got to go first, right? What does this say? If you know someone has a problem with you, Whose responsibility is it from Christ's mouth to your ears and heart? Yours, not theirs. Well, what if you go to them and they don't want to reconcile? Now that's on them. And you should always leave your hand open. We know this from Paul from 2 Corinthians, right? Even those we turn over to Satan as the church in an act of discipline, we're supposed to make sure that for all of the days that we have any contact with them, that they know that they are loved and they would be welcomed back in Christ. Full stop. And so here we have a very simple and straightforward word from Christ. The question is, will we hear it as simple and straightforward or is your first reaction going to be, but what about, but what about, 
Yes, there are some complex situations. When you get into situations of abuse, of which I have endured, yes, it becomes more complex. Primarily, we're talking about relationships within the church, though. People who claim to be in Christ, and so therefore, those kind of situations ought to be a bit less complex overall. And so part of how we work out our salvation with fear and trembling is to quickly pursue reconciliation wherever we know it is at odds. Now, real important that you recognize who is your nearest neighbor. To whom are you to be reconciled first? Who? The people you live with. I don't know that you get any nearer neighbor than that one. And, and it's really important, right? How many times, let's be honest, have we as, I'm going to start with parents. Y'all thought I was going to start with married folk. You got nervous. It's way worse than that, actually. I'm going to start with parents. How many times, parents, have you taken communion knowing that your child was at odds with you and you did not pursue reconciliation with them before you took? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And it doesn't mean that you are worthy of the fires of hell. This is where we have the opportunity to repent and do what we can. Now, let me be very clear about something here. Reconciliation is a process, right? For us to be able to take of the table in a manner that allows for us to receive the nourishment we need to pursue that reconciliation, the process just has to be, be begun, not finished, right? Some things take a long time. Again, I'm talking about within the church. So this is if your child is a professing believer, right? You ought to be quick to try to pursue reconciliation with them. And sometimes it's just as simple as, hey, I know we're not, on the, we're not working simpatico here. You can use that as an exact quote. They'll probably not know what it means. Uh, I know we're not on the same page here. But I want you to know that I love you and I trust that this can be worked out. There you go. Now, you can get more complex than that if you like. That's up to you. But we ought to keep short accounts with our children. How else will they learn reconciliation if we don't offer it first to them? Now, let's talk about marriage. Marriage is also one of those places that I think that we think that we don't have to do this. In fact, I, I doubt any of us, when we read this passage, thought at all about our spouse or our children. Probably the first thing you did when you heard it was like, you ran through your mind like, oh, I'm good with everybody in the church. <sighs> Whew. Good. I ain't talking to me this morning. Oh, but I am. And Jesus is too. And what he's trying to say is I, he wants for us to experience the fullness of his love for us in and through the power of reconciliation. Think about that. What a gift that is to not feel like that you're at odds with somebody, so you have to come in a different door of the church so you don't run into that person, or you stop coming to a small group, or you stop coming to some sort of men's or women's stuff, and you, you don't go to retreats, or you don't go to different things that are offered by the church because you are at odds with somebody, or you know they're at odds with you. And so start where you live. Start with your children and make sure, because Christ is not giving you any sort of but, but here, we are to pursue reconciliation. Sometimes part of reconciliation is letting someone know how they have hurt us. Part of reconciliation is letting someone know how they frustrate us. But being willing, if they are willing to work on the process, give room 
for Christ to work in the power of the Spirit. And then, obviously, there's within the church, right? There's within Christ's community church that we are to consider these things. And let's also remember there's between churches and between people groups. Now, it could get really complex after that. You may say, well, shoot, I can't take communion in the next hundred years. I've got to work through all this reconciliation stuff. Well, hopefully you're not that deep into the well and have that many people who are angry with you. But it is worth us considering and asking within our spheres of influence, right? How, is it, how are we perceived? How have we specifically, in any way, shape, or form, been at odds with another church or uh, another uh, people group, people of God of some kind. Now that's more for another day, but let's stick with what we've got here because I think that will be plenty. So notice what Jesus says. He's like, you've heard it said that if you murder, you are liable for judgment, right? And that's, that's, that's a pretty big deal. And for most of us, and you see this even with the, the, the rich young ruler, he's like, look, I, I kept all the stuff I wasn't supposed to do. Like, I ain't murdered nobody, ain't lied to nobody, ain't stole from nobody. You remember Jesus says to him, that's great. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Give up the thing that it has captured your imagination and heart more than anything else. And he said, no. So Jesus is going to kind of do that to us here. There's some things that many of us are holding on to uh, that we need to lay down in order to be able to, to more fully receive with fear and trembling the gifts of our salvation from him. So he goes on to say, and he makes, and notice, he walks through a progression. Just in case we try to wiggle out at some point, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable, and he uses the same word as for murder, judgment. Now, there was an essay that I read as a new believer called The First Five Dollars. And I think it's applicable here, and it's always stuck with me. You know, sometimes you read something, it just sticks with you the whole of your days. And it was talking about embezzlement and an affair. And it said, like, with embezzlement, rarely does the person start with a million. They usually start with five dollars. Now, that, don't go getting exact on that and trying to look stuff up and send me videos or any of that kind of stuff. This was back in the 80s. They took less, well, they took a lot of money back in the 80s, but they, $5 was a pretty good start. So the first $5, as they got away with it and they kept creeping, it made it more possible to do the million, right? Same thing with an affair. They gave the example of, say you're working with somebody and they're stressed out and you come up behind them, you give them a massage, Right? Rarely do affairs work like the internet tries to portray them in the worst possible story. It always begins emotionally, or I say always, majority of the time it begins emotionally and slowly over time. It's the first $5. So what Jesus is doing here is helping us to see murder comes from somewhere. It's very few instances that you would be likely to just murder someone randomly for no reason. Like, it's a Wednesday afternoon, you don't know what to do with yourself, and you're like, I don't know, I'll kill a hobo. That's probably not what you're going to do. More than likely, what you're going to do is begin with anger in your heart towards someone. Think about the genocide in Rwanda. That didn't happen overnight. It seemed like it did, but it was being cultivated for decades, if not longer than that. And so we need to recognize that there are things that lead us into places that we don't want to go. And as people of God, we can't look at other image bearers and let anger be the lens by which we look at them. 
This does not mean that you won't sometimes get frustrated or angry. I did mention parenting and marriage, didn't I? You will. But which way do you go with it? Which way do you run with your anger? Do you run internally into your own interior castle? Where you can stoke the fires like you're some sort of character in the Lord of the Rings? You're just Sauron trapped? I don't know. I just finished the, the Return of the King, so it's on my mind. And so, but it's an apt description, right? Notice what you become when you run interiorly and you stoke the fires of anger. Not only does the other person lose their image bearing, so do you. And Jesus loves us way too much to let us begin with that first $5. And notice what he goes on to next. He says, and then if you begin to insult your brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. Now the council here, more than likely, given the flow of what he's talking about, is the heavenly council, not just some earthly council, right? There's not an earthly council that's like, ah, yeah, that was an insult, you owe them $5. You don't get penalized for this by any earthly council. This is the heavenly council, right? Know that there is this great cloud of witnesses looking on and cheering us on toward eternity. And that heavenly council wants to behold the people of God functioning as the people of God to, for us to look like Jesus in the words that we use, in the heart that we have, in the way that we treat other image bearers especially within the church. If you can't treat people within the church as image bearers, what hope do you have for those outside the church who have no boundaries, no chill, no whatever? And then he goes on. It's not just anger and it's not just that morphing into an insult. There's a particular epithet that you could utter that's going to cost you. And he says, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's judgment rendered, by the way. Now, you may be like, calling somebody a fool, man, that's strong. Don't get tangled up in the actual word. It's not, as long as you avoid the word, you're fine. The word actually is raha. I don't know if any of you have used that word, uh, but it's not the word that gets you in trouble, right? It's not a, this isn't an exercise in language dancing, this is for you to so diminish someone, reduce them to an epithet. We see it in the way that we speak of each other in terms of race, do we not? We have epithets for one another. And it is, it is, it is re reductionistic. It reduces us to words that are filled with hatred. And cannot be uttered. You cannot utter those words to someone uh, across from you and have them go, oh, thank you. I feel encouraged and built up in the image of God. And so it's very important that we recognize what Jesus is doing here. There is this progression that if left unchecked becomes worthy of judgment. Now, did he just say you could lose your salvation? No, even though you didn't say amen all that hard on assurance of pardon, the reality is no. What he's telling us is what you may be doing is proving who you are not. This is part of working out our salvation with fear and trembling and understanding that if we are in Christ, there are ways in which we should look in this world that are inarguable, 
They just come with being in Christ. Now, I'm not saying we're not going to wrestle with it, and I'm not saying that we don't need conviction and repentance from it. I'm not saying we won't make mistakes. But for us to live in it and refuse to follow the simplest path that Christ has laid out in terms of reconciliation is to essentially call into question whether or not you are in Christ. And if that concerns you, praise God. Praise God if that concerns you enough to want to know, am I in Christ? Well, pursue reconciliation as one arm of that, right? For us to deny reconciliation to someone else that Christ has bestowed his blood upon is to try to be a God that doesn't exist. And so he is giving us a way in which we can work out our salvation with fear and tremor. Are we a people willing to reconcile? And let me say this. If you've got a circumstance that's maybe more complex uh, than, than, is, than is a straight line, what should you do? Let it lay? No, you should pursue, as the scripture tells us, wise counsel. You should go ask a more mature brother or sister in Christ, put the situation before them and say, what do I need to do? And this is where we need to be helpful to each other. This is where we need to help each other uh, in terms of reconciliation. We hear the words from it. We hear how we speak about things and other people. You've heard it. We call it a prayer request, but it's just gossip sometimes. Right? We, we hear how people talk about other groups of people. Right? And you're like, I bet, yeah, I just, I'm going to let the Spirit. But, but you're, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit that's in the presence of that person. Why would you withhold from them the good from your hand that could actually set them free from something that could lead them into the fires of hell? Why would we not love each other this way? Yeah, but they, they may react. Okay, let them react. Let it be known. Let it come to the light who and whose they are. We are not a people of fear. This is something that we ought to be about. And the table is the table of reconciliation. Declaring it to us, nourishing us in it. Weekend, well, we don't do it every week, I'm sorry. Month in and month out, right? That we have the opportunity to be reminded. So part of how we all ought prepare for the Lord's table, one of the things that ought to be part of your regular preparation is for you to just put it before the Spirit. Holy Spirit, is there anyone with whom I am not reconciled in the church? You start there, in my home, in the church. And what would, you, what would you have me do? Again, don't make it complex. It's a straight line. Go to them. Like he says, if you know they have a problem with you, you leave your offering and go seek to make it right and come back and then enjoy your offering or the results of the offering. Too many times we're, we just try to, yeah, it'll get better. Does it? Has it for you? The things that you've let sit in darkness, has it gotten better for you? Now, you may, we may have a bell curve here, and on the tail end of the curve, there may be some folks like, yeah, it's just going away every time because they died. Well, that's not the same thing, right? And sometimes maybe it does resolve itself a little easier than you going directly, but you lost, you lost opportunity over time to know the difference. 
It's the road you didn't take. And so Jesus is trying to help us be a freer people instead of carrying the burdens and being unable to benefit from the gifts that he has sovereignly placed around us. Every one of you who is here this morning, I don't, it's not all for the exact same reason, but the Lord has sovereignly placed you here. You may say, well, I made the decision. I drove. Yeah, you did, and that's a good thing. But you need to recognize that you're not just here for you. You're here for the people around you. Your gifts, your encouragement, your hospitality, your wit, your humor, your generosity is necessary. Every single one of you are a gift to both the church and the world if you're in Christ. We need to live as gift. We need to live as those who recognize what we've been saved for, not just to, but for. Well, we've been saved, and why are we still here? So the world can see the evidence of the reconciliation in Christ. Remember, he says, the world will know who you are by what you hate. No, by the love that you have for one another. Is that easy? Am I easy to love? Don't you? That's a rhetorical for Susan. I'm not. I'm not. Right? I am not. Uh, and you, you probably aren't either. And it's not easy for us to love one another because there's so many signals flying around the system and so many ways in which we misinterpret each other and so many ways in which we just fail each other. And so... Praise be to God that we have a table that calls us back to one another, back to Christ himself, to remember who and whose we are, to be nourished in who and whose we are. Randolph and I were talking. He's completed his elder training. You can clap, actually, mid-service. <clears throat> He's accepted the nomination. You can clap again. Uh, and you'll be getting an email. Don't clap for email. Uh, you'll get an email on all that stuff, and on uh, December 10th, Lord willing, we will uh, celebrate or his ordination with some friends of ours uh, who will be in attendance. And so uh, it, it, he and I were talking about the Lord's table and how one of the beautiful things about our view of the Lord's table, uh, he was studying the different kinds of uh, views on the Lord's table, and we got to talking about the Calvinist view, which is ours, the spiritual presence, that in the table something actually happens. It's not the throne of God. Right? This is some Hebrews 4 type stuff. To receive what we need. And here's the beautiful part. If you show up before the throne, right? First and foremost, what does Jesus say as the accuser stands hard right of you, detailing what you have done wrong this week? What does Jesus do? He intercedes. Not jot and tittle. He doesn't have to go jot and tittle. This is beautiful. He just says... <laughs> No, that's my son or daughter. Shut your mouth and depart from me. Not, not us, but the accuser. <laughs> to be clear here, it, got, it could have got weird for a second. He's interceding. So you show up, you hadn't been perfect this week. In fact, probably less than perfect this week. Some of y'all for sure in the first quarter of that Georgia game uttered some words that ought not be spoken. And it comes close to Raqqa if you're not careful. And so, so we're not perfect. Jesus intercedes even better. 
So what is it you're supposed to say before the throne? What is required of you to receive what you need? Nothing. Because the Holy Spirit who indwells you, who brought you hospitably before the throne, is praying for you, Romans 8. And amen. Right? That we get to receive all this because of our union with Christ. And think about it for a second. What is it that if we did show up before, the, we do, as we show up before the throne of grace, what are you going to say that like Jesus hasn't heard or hasn't seen or that he'd be like, wow, that is pretty impressive. Nothing. So the beauty is we get to show up already having received and to then be nourished in that forgiveness and reconciliation and newness of life in which we now walk. And it affords us the ability to go from here and pursue reconciliation in our other spheres of influence in the world. But you've got to be first reconciled within the church in order for that to make any sense. Right? So we have this process, and praise God. And so, Westminster Larger Catechism, 171, uh, and I'll emphasize a, a couple of things in particular. It, it is a, this one you ought to maybe put on a, a, a note card or whatever the kids do these days, whatever they use, and have it for you to be able to refer to maybe each, each time we have the Lord's Supper. This, these would be some good things for you to think through. It says, how are those who receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before they come to it? And here's the list. Those who receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper are to prepare themselves for it before they come by examining themselves in the following ways of their being in Christ. It is not neurotically, not anxiously, it is always a gift to be reminded of who and whose we are in Christ. And then of their sins and needs, right? I'm not, I am perfected before the throne. I am not perfect in the world. There are times where my sins just get the best of me. There are times where I have needs that exceed my ability to meet them. Praise God that we are reminded that there is one who cares about both of those realities. And then of the truth and measure of their knowledge, faith, repentance, and love to God and to the brethren. This is know you are loved. You cannot love God remotely. And he makes it so hard with the whole of your heart, soul, and mind unless you have first been loved. It's an impossible equation if Christ hasn't done it for us. And then to love our neighbors who are also complex beings uh, hurtling through time toward eternity with all of their different sins and needs and flaws. How could we love them if we didn't know we are loved? It's a dangerous proposition otherwise. And then of their charity to all peoples, forgiving those who have done them wrong. There's a sense in which, notice it says, forgiving those who have done them wrong or, as Christ would say, pursuing those who have been offended by us. It's not their responsibility. That is foolishness. This says it simply. And it goes on, of their desires for Christ and, new, and of new obedience and by renewing the exercise of these grace, graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. I get it. That's old school language. You may be thinking, this sounds like hours. Well, it could be, and that doesn't make you more loved than somebody for whom it takes 10 minutes. The point is, are we even considering it? And how would we mature if we don't, right? 
You've got to have a space to be reminded and, and called to it, right? So this is a help to us. I would commend it to you to use it. Now, is part, and the question for you is, is part of your preparation for the Lord's table a consideration of who you need to be reconciled to in the church before you partake? If it's not, I have good news for you. It needs to be, and Christ loves you. You can make that change starting today. You may say, well, I mean, I didn't come in prepared for this, right? Um, if there is someone in here this morning that you have a particular issue with, I don't suspect you're going to be able to work it all out uh, in the few minutes that we have prior to the Lord's table, but I would encourage you to at least go to that person. And you may say, well, that's kind of embarrassing. Was Christ embarrassed to die for you naked on a cross? And you won't walk across the room to be reconciled to a brother or sister because you're afraid of what somebody else may think of you? We need to recognize that this isn't embarrassing at all. In fact, it may be the thing that sparks someone else to go do the same, right? Maybe there's no revival for us in many respects because we're not even pursuing the simplest of reconciliation. Maybe there's no fresh wind, fresh fire for us because we won't even do the simplest thing that Christ said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. If we won't walk across the room to be reconciled to each other, well, what greater deed are we going to do? Right? So, having said that, I'm going to take a moment to pray before I step down to the table. And I want to take a few moments to do that for you if you need to walk across the room or turn in your chair, which is probably the most likely uh, of, of circumstances. Now, if y'all hear Susan run up here and I get tackled into the things, just let it be. Uh, that's how we work out our reconciliation. <laughs> Watched a lot of wrestling growing up. Sometimes that's how you got to do it. Uh, and so uh, I, I, I'm serious. This is an opportunity for us to put into practice. Now, you may be thinking, man, he must know something. Somebody sideways? I don't. I just know in the likelihood of 200 people in a room, probably two of them are at odds and need reconciliation to lay it aside and then come to the altar and take uh, and be able to take in such a way that is more freeing and more beautiful than otherwise. So I'm going to bow my head. You can bow yours. You can go pursue. You can lean over. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to take a few minutes to pray. And uh, if you need to do this, do it. And then when I step down, maybe we be a freer people as a result. Father, we come before you first and foremost and give you thanks that reconciliation has been brokered for us in Christ alone, through your grace alone, and we receive it by faith alone. Thank you, Father, that we have the means of grace by which we can be uh, free, free of the burdens of guilt shame, unforgiveness, uh, uh, anger, um, just all the ways in which we look down on other people, that is a burden that doesn't help us. It doesn't draw us to hope. It doesn't cause us to look to the right hand where Christ is seated on high, away from the things of the earth. Would you help us do that by keeping short accounts with one another? Would you give us the courage to move toward one another instead of away from each other? Would you help us to apply, to live out the reconciliation that you called Christ to give his life for 
to suffer in a way that none of us would ever be able to comprehend and that we will never taste because he took it all upon himself. Father, thank you that we get to boldly come before the throne, not needing any words, but hearing yet again that we are sons and daughters, hearing yet again that we are forgiven eternally in Christ, that judgment has been rendered for our justification. Thank you that the Holy Spirit who indwells us cries out and prays the words that we don't know oftentimes how to utter. And that what we are called to do is to hospitably receive the good gifts from your hand. We're not there to impress. We come before the throne to receive. And that reception is so that as we go back into the valley of this fallen world, as we are pilgrims on journey, that we would love one another so the world would know who and whose we are. That we would also love those who don't yet know, who we long to see become part of the family. That we would be able to love them in such a way that they would taste and see, Lord, that you are good. Would you, Lord, fan into flame within us a genuine desire to see things made right to see unity within the church of Christ. How littered is church history with the unwillingness to do this the simplest of things. Forgive us, Lord. Remind us of our forgiveness. And as we come to your table, would you stir within us a genuine desire for the things of Christ, to look more and more like Christ. For your glory, our joy, in the life of the world.